Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, it's our custom to make sure that we are all uh, prepared to study the Word. Scripture teaches that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, who fills us and enables us to understand his word, and it is through our daily walk by means of the Holy Spirit abiding in Christ that we are enabled to grow spiritually, as it is the Holy Spirit who is the dynamic at work in our lives to take the word that we have learned and to apply it to our lives. But when we sin, we break fellowship with God. That ongoing sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit is is broken, and we need to recover fellowship with God. And Scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before we begin, we have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship with God, ready to study His Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who has made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You are the God of history, the God who created mankind, and you are the God who laid out the plan of human history. You have declared the end from the beginning, and this demonstrates your uniqueness, your integrity, and the fact that you are, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and your ways are higher than our ways. And yet, Father, you have condescended to reveal yourself to us in ways that we can understand you and to reveal your plan and purposes to us in the written word that we might come to orient our thinking to your plans, your purposes, and to understand the goal of human history. In our study of Revelation, we have been challenged to recognize that there is a future destiny for believers as members of the bride of Christ who will come back with him to rule and reign with him in the kingdom. Today, this time period while we are alive on earth is our time of preparation, and we prepare by learning your word, applying it, and growing spiritually. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Revelation, may we be encouraged by what we study, we may be challenged to to grow, and that we may focus on the future not just as an academic exercise, but as a way to understand how you are going to bring all things to a final conclusion in human history. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. 
This morning we're going to be in three passages, I hope. We will get to the third. We will start briefly in Revelation chapter 6, and then we will spend most of our time in the ninth chapter of Daniel before we then come to Matthew chapter 24. What we learn as we continue to do this overview of Revelation 6 through 19, we're in the second part of uh, the outline of Revelation. We're reminded that Revelation has three parts, that based on Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the things which John saw initially there on the Isle of Patmos when Jesus Christ The risen, resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to him in the garb and the uh, uh, presence of a a priest, a judge, a a priest judge. And this is the backdrop for the book. The next two chapters, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, focus on the things which are, that is, the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation, which give the trends of the church age, and then the things which will take place after these things. We're in the third section. Actually, chapters four and five focus on what's happening in heaven, in the throne of God. And so it is not until we get to Revelation 6, verse 1, after five chapters of introduction and 144 hours of going through those first five chapters that we actually come to what most people think about when you're going to study Revelation, and that is what's going to happen in the future, what's going to happen in the tribulation. How do we understand these events? How do we understand current events in light of those future events? Another way in which we have looked at the book of Revelation is that the first chapter focuses on the glorified Christ, then the second and third chapters on the trends in the church age, and now we are on this third section The first part of it deals with the tribulation in Revelation chapters 4 through 19. That is the core of the the book. Then there is one chapter dealing with the 1,000-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth in the millennial kingdom or the messianic kingdom, and then two chapters for the eternal state. That's the outline of the book. If you can understand that, the things which were the things which are, the things which shall be after these things. Understand that threefold outline, then you can think your way through the book of Revelation. Now, we're on this last section dealing with specifically chapters 4 through 19. And how do we understand this with all of the different things that are going on, the different judgments that take place? How do we organize and understand all this uh, information? And one of the things that I try to provide for us at times is a flyover where we can get the big picture and and begin to understand what this is all about, why God has revealed this to John and to us, and why it is important for us to know it and how it fits within the overall uh, panorama of prophecy that is given in the Scripture. Much of the Bible is given to prophecy, and in fact, approximately one-fifth of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. Now, I've heard people say, well, we don't, we don't want to really pander to people's curiosity about the future and teach all this stuff about prophecy. It's more important to understand how to live our spiritual life today. And granted, there, it is important for us to live our spiritual life today, but a major principle in Scripture is that we live today in light of the future. 
And so we have to understand the future, and God has revealed the future to us for the very purpose that it motivates and challenges us today to live our spiritual life in a more uh, dedicated, committed fashion because we understand where we're headed. We understand where we are going. As we look at Revelation, we look at these chapters from Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter uh, 19, there's, as I said earlier, a tremendous amount of of data there, information there, and we have to understand some way in which to organize this, and the primary way to organize this has to do with chronology. What is the basic chronology that we run into in uh, Revelation 4 through 19? First of all, to understand this chronology and the reasons for these chapters, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Much of the book of Revelation is built on the Old Testament. In fact, you can't understand the symbols. You can't understand what's being taught there if you don't have an understanding of what was revealed in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, God was revealing his plans and purposes to Israel. And in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, in all of these different books, There's a tremendous amount of information that God revealed to Israel about her future destiny and her future kingdom. All of this gets pulled together and all the loose strands get tied up when you get into the book of Revelation. So as we go through these chapters, we're going to be taking time to go back to Zechariah, to look at Joel, to look at different aspects of the book of Daniel, and to understand key things that are said in Isaiah and Ezekiel. So that makes it a lot of fun because to study Revelation, you have to just about study everything else in the Bible. And one of the things that I realized in the study of prophecy is that a pastor really doesn't have enough control over the data of Scripture and theology to teach much about eschatology and prophecy and revelation early in his ministry. Now, most of us have and most of us did because we were just regurgitating what we were taught either in seminary classrooms or or by a pastor that we studied under. But to really control this massive amount of data, you have to spend a lot of time uh, time in grade. You just have to have a lot of time in the Word and a lot of time mastering these other areas of theology because ultimately... Everything comes through in your study of eschatology, the study of last last things. So we have to understand some things about uh, <clears throat> a couple of key passages. The first is Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And the next thing that really expands on that is in the framework of Matthew chapter 24, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is answering the question of his disciples, what are the signs of your coming? And so the answer to that question is the content of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is answering about the signs of his coming, not the rapture, but the second coming. And so from Matthew 24, 2 and following, we see this discourse on the um, on the tribulation. And we will see that in that discourse, Jesus divides the tribulation into two periods. 
In the first 14 verses, he, de- he defines this as the beginning of birth pangs, the beginning of sorrows, uh, New King James puts it, the beginning of birth pangs. And then in the second part of his discourse, he describes the second half of the tribulation as the great tribulation. And what separates the first half from the second half is an event known as the abomination of desolation. And this becomes the event in the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period, that gives us the clue as to how to organize the data that we're going to get into the events in Revelation. So from the chronological anchor points in Daniel 9 and Matthew 24, we will then be able to understand the structure and the chronology of the tribulation in Revelation 4 through 19. I pointed this out last time, that the rapture occurs at the end of the present church age, and then what we're told about in uh, the core part of Revelation are three series of judgments. The first series consists of seven seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment consists of seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet judgment then consists of seven bowl judgments. The chapters that come in between these fill in other gaps of information related to the key players and some other uh, background information that is usually non-chronological, but it's put into a chronological framework. And the question for us is to try to understand how these fit and relate to one another within this seven-year period. Once we understand that, then all the details start to fall out together and will make a little more sense. Now, not every prophecy scholar or Bible scholar agrees on how these things fit together. Dr. Walvoord, who is considered one of the foremost dispensationalists and prophecy scholars and was president of Dallas Seminary for many years, believed that all three sets of judgments came in the last half of the tribulation, and the first half of the tribulation was basically a period of peace and and uh, as the Antichrist uh, pulls together his power and establishes a one-world rule based on pseudo-peace. There have been others who organize it this way, where the seven seal judgments come in the first half of the tribulation, with the sixth seal judgment coming about the time of the abomination of desolation, and the trumpets and the bowls come at the end of the tribulation or in the second half of the tribulation. Then there have been, there are others who put the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments before the midpoint of the tribulation and the bowl judgments at the end. And as I pointed out last time, I believe this is probably the one that most closely fits the information given in scripture. And we're going to have to uh, work our way through this. I have no idea what you've heard in the past. Uh, I've heard different things because I've sat under almost all of the great uh, Bible prophecy teachers at one time or another, Dr. Pentecost at Dallas Seminary and Dr. Walbert and, and numerous others. And so you hear some different things. And sometimes I go away scratching my head, and I'm sure that some of you are this way. Well, if they can't agree, how can we know? Well, if you come to the History of Doctrine class on Monday night, what you learn 
is that over the course of time, we learn because of the mistakes of previous generations. They try to get it right, but they don't quite get it right. But because they made the guesses, the stabs, the attempts that they made, we're able then to build on that. And that's true often in life that if you look at uh, inventors, uh, often they invent things such that men like Edison would make this didn't work and then that didn't work and then this other thing didn't quite work. And eventually, through a series of failures, they have successes. And that's been true in the study of the Scriptures. And so somebody makes a stab at how it look, how they think these things fit together, and it sounds pretty good, but the more you think about it, the more you study the Word, you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about this over here and that over there and this over here? So uh, that's the process, and it's not always as nice and neat as we'd like it to be, but then human beings aren't as nice and neat as we'd like for them to be. So we're going to start to try to uh, understand this chronology by going back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had been focusing in his prayer about on confession of the national sin of Israel prior to their being taken out under the fifth cycle of discipline in 586. And he has been studying and reading in uh, Jeremiah, and he has come to understand what the time frame would be of their discipline, that it would be 70 years. And so he is seeking information about when God would return the people to the land. And in answer to that, God gives him a revelation that is going to outline the future history, future to him, future history of Israel all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the subject of this prophecy, it relates to your people, which would be the Jews, and your holy city, which would be Jerusalem. It is not about the church. It's not about the church age. There is no mention of the church age in this prophecy. It is all about God's plan and purposes for for Israel. Now let's just pick up on the on the immediate context. In verse 20 we read, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, that would be the temple mountain in Jerusalem. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who's an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand or wisdom to understand uh, what God has revealed. He's going to give him a major prophecy. This is one of the most significant prophecies in all of Scripture. And one of the things, if you don't get anything else, if the numbers... If the details kind of confuse you, if you've never heard it before, the one thing that you should get out of this is that God is a God of precision and a God of detail. And just as he is a God of precision in his plans and his purposes and in how he has structured human history, he is a God of detail and precision in your life and my life. And so he is one who can be trusted with the details of our lives. So... Daniel is given this information, verse 23, Gabriel says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you 
For you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter. That means to think about this. And that's something that applies to us in that we are to go to Scripture and to think about the Scripture. We're not just supposed to open it up as if God gives us the answer right there. Uh, it's interesting is uh, when we first got started with the history of doctrine class on Monday night, one of the men who is taking the class for credit up in uh, New England uh, commented after two or three weeks of the class, he says, you know, this is just remarkable how God gave us his word. If he had given us a systematic theology that had all of the answers to all of our questions laid out, then we would have opened the book, read it, closed it, and put it on the shelf and gone about our lives. But because God revealed it to us in terms of history, in terms of uh, poetry, prophecy, in terms of narrative, because of the way God revealed it to us, we are forced every day to go back and examine what the text says, think about it, study it, and even to this day we haven't plumbed its depths. So that is the purpose. It's for us to study and to think about. So Daniel is, is challenged, consider the matter, understand the vision. So we have an overview of the 70 weeks. In Daniel 9.24, we get the overview, the entire panorama. These 70 weeks, we'll learn, are actually 490 years decreed for the nation Israel. In Daniel 9.25, we'll see that the period is divided into basically two blocks. The first block is a block of 69 weeks, or 483 years. And then in verse 26, we will see that there is a gap of time between the 69th week and the 70th week. We don't know how long that gap is, but the text is clear that there is a gap of time between the 483rd year and the 484th year. God has his stopwatch, and he stopped it the day Christ died on the cross, and he doesn't click it again to start the clock running for those last seven years until the beginning of the 70th week, which is described in Daniel 9.27. So let's look at these passages. In Daniel 9.24, we read that 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Your people, your holy city, your people are Israel, your holy city is Jerusalem. And then various purposes are listed to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern. Now, let me just add a comment here. This is not given to somehow cause Daniel to scratch his head, contemplate his navel, to uh, wonder uh, what is going on. It, it, God reveals himself to make something clear. The word revelation means to disclose or uncover. He doesn't reveal things in order to uh, obfuscate things or to confuse us. So that it is given for the purpose that we may know and discern something, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven and 62 is 69 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So the focus here is that it's talking about a time of the building, the final 
building of Jerusalem as uh, refortified with the walls up and in a defensive posture, not just sending the Jews back to the land, which is what occurred uh, under Cyrus, but a decree to finish the rebuilding of all of its fortifications. Verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. This is when that, the, the, the 62 week is, 62nd week is actually the 69th in the scheme. Remember, it was 762. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So there, the, the Messiah is cut off. Then at least 35 years went by before the prince of the people who is to come uh, destroyed the city and the sanctuary. That occurred uh, when the Romans destroyed Jer- Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in AD 70. So there's at least a 35-year gap of time between the 69th week and the 70th week. And the uh, <clears throat> prophecy goes on to read, and it will, the end will come with a flood, and even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27, and he, the he there refers to the prince of the people who is to come. Now, the people who attacked Jerusalem in AD 70 were the Romans. So the prince of those people would be European, of European extraction and part of that revived Roman empire that will occur in the end times. He will make a covenant. This prince will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, the point that I want to make here is that this last 70th week is called one week. It's divided into uh, a two halves. And in the middle, there is an abomination that takes place. King James called an abomination of desolation. That's a term that's picked up by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, and that's what we're focusing on. So we'll go to a little understanding of this passage so that if you haven't studied this with me before, you won't feel too lost. Uh, the first issue is the chronology. What are the 70 weeks? Literally in the Hebrew, it is a 70 periods of seven or 77s. Okay, it doesn't say 70 weeks, it says 70 groups of sevens, and 70 times 7 is going to equal 490 years. So that's the framework within which we are talking. Always keep that in mind. Now, why 490 years? And here's a little chart that talks about what had happened in the past with Israel and in the future. For as uh, Daniel has been meditating on Jeremiah 25.11, and Jeremiah 29.10, he recognizes that part of the purpose for Israel's being removed from the land had to do with the violation of the sabbatical years. And so they had violated uh, 70 times 7 sabbatical years. That would be 490 years. So this was looking at the past, that, be, that the past chronology related to these years was 490 years, And so that is where the term 490 comes from, and it relates to the future. Again, you should be impressed with God's precision in time. It's not just something that uh, happens willy-nilly. 
So the 490 years are related to the past failures of Israel, and this is then brought over and applied to their future, uh, their future chronology. Six things are accomplished. Now, all of these six things that are mentioned relate to Israel. You may say, well, it looks like some of them relate to what Christ did on the cross, and in some sense they do, but the context suggests that they are related to the sin of Israel. First of all, to finish the transgression, that is Israel's rebellion, their idolatry in the Old Testament. Second, to make an end of sin, that is Israel's sin and rejection of Messiah, to atone for iniquity in relation to Israel. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness that occurs in the millennial kingdom that Jesus Christ establishes at his second coming. Fifth, to seal up vision and prophecy. This will bring to a culmination these prophecies related to Israel. And then sixth, to anoint the most holy place, and that is the establishment of the millennial temple, which is described by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapters 40 and following. So these six things are accomplished within this 490-year period, but they weren't all accomplished in the first 483 years. They do not become finally fulfilled until the last week. So we go back and break it down the first 69 weeks at the commencement. The 70 weeks refers to 490 years, but we have to find the starting point. And over the period of time, people have suggested four different decrees, but only one works. The first was a decree of Cyrus on October 29th, 539 B.C., for uh, um, Zerubbabel to take a group of Jews from Babylon back to the land. Now, they didn't actually get back for another year or so, but in 539 we have the decree of Cyrus. But that's not it, because it doesn't relate to rebuilding the city uh, uh, walls and moat in terms of their fortifications. Well, they had some problems really getting started, and they slowed down on rebuilding the temple, and they weren't getting things in in line. So there's another decree from Darius in 519 or 518 for a second group to go back and to complete the building of the temple, which finished in 516. Then there is another decree, a third decree, from Artaxerxes Longomanus to Ezra in 457 B.C. But once again, they did not build uh, the fortifications around, around Jerusalem. Remember, that's the main idea, is that they would rebuild uh, the city uh, in terms of all of their all of their fortifications. They would rebuild their streets and their walls. That decree is the fourth decree when Artaxerxes Longomanus gives a decree to Nehemiah, which is given in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8, that for him to take a group back and to finish rebuilding the walls. The Jews that were there being attacked by various different groups, and they're having a hard time, and so they need to have a better defensive position uh, in, in relation to the walls around Jerusalem. So we can date that decree precisely in history to March the 5th, 444 B.C. And if you're interested in tracking down all of the details that go into figuring that out, there was a tremendous series of articles on the chronology of the life of Christ written by Harold Honer at Dallas Seminary for his uh, doctoral dissertation at Cambridge and in his work there. And uh, I've 
try to uh, go back and check out a lot of this information over the years. I've always had, got a little interest in chronology, but it is uh, there's so much that goes into it, I just leave it to somebody who has years to spend on the subject without any other distractions. But I think that, but his figures relate to others who have uh, taken the time to check this out. So March the 5th, 444 B.C. Now, the 69 weeks end when the Messiah is cut off. And we know that on March the 30th, in A.D. 33, which is before the death of Jesus, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. This is described in Luke 21, 38 to 44, which is the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city, which coincided with the day of presentation prior to the Passover, because uh, four days before Passover, Passover would be on the 14th of the, the Jewish month Nisan, not an automobile, it's their month, it roughly correlates to our April, March, springtime month, that four days before that, on the 10th of Nisan, the Passover lambs were to be presented for observation to make sure that they were without spot or blemish. So once again, we see the precision of God's timetable. God is not a God that operates on chance and coincidences. So we know that this is when the 69 weeks ends, and then there's a gap of at least 37 years between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. So after he enters, he is cut off. This is the death of the Messiah after the 69th week. After that, the Messiah will be cut off. This occurred four days later on April the 3rd, A.D. 33, according to the best calculations. And then there is a period of time before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which occurs in A.D., August of A.D. Uh, 70. This is in Daniel 12:26b. So what this gets us is a question of one year remains, one year, one seven-year period remains. And the question that has come up is, is this past or future? And there is a no-gap view. People who think that all of this has already transpired, they're called preterists. And for those of you who attended the pre-trib conference in December or the conference we had at Schaefer Seminary last, uh, last month, uh, Dr. Mark Hitchcock gave a fabulous refutation of the whole preterist position showing that uh, the book of Revelation was written after the destruction of Jerusalem, and so this prophecy is all future. So we believe in a gap view, <laughs> that there is a gap between um, these two periods of time, and we're still living in the gap. Okay, now we get into the mathematical part of everything. The decree to restore occurs on March the 5th, 444 B.C., with Artaxerxes' decree in Nehemiah chapter 2. When we add the 7 plus the 62, we get 69 weeks. And at that time, the Messiah, the Prince, has his triumphal entry, Luke 19, 28 to 40. So let's do the math. All of this relates to Israel. Now let's do the math. 70 times 7 is 490 years. But 69 times 7 equals 483 years, or 173,880 days. Now, I know that some of you who are real math uh, whizzes have already figured out that, that that doesn't relate to a 365 and a quarter day year, and you're right. 
And we'll have to show you why we believe that it's only a 360-day year. And it don't, that's how you come up with your uh, number of days like that. First of all, in the Bible, there are various descriptions of the seven-year tribulation period. It's described as a half a week in Daniel 9.27, so that would be three and a half days, actually three and a half years. In Daniel 7.25 and Daniel 12.7, along with Revelation 12.4, which describes the period of time the Jews are in the wilderness protected by God, that is, the regenerate Jews are in the wilderness protected by God, it is referred to by the phrase time, singular, times, two, and a half a time. That would be three and a half years, same time period. Then in Revelation 12.6, notice the same passage and talking about the same issue as Revelation 12.14. The time times and a half a time is referred to as 1,260 days. Okay? You with me so far? It's described as 42 months in Revelation 11.2 and Revelation 13.5. So the conclusion is that 42 months equals 1,260 days. And if you did just do the simple uh, division of 1,260 days by uh, three uh, by uh, 42, you end up with 30-day months, and each year equals 360 days. It's a lunar year. So you have this period of time. So we use that calculation of 360 days, multiply it out, and that's how you end up with a 483-year period equaling 173,880 days. Now, if you take a calendar and you work from March the 5th, 444 B.C., to March the 30th, A.D. 33, you end up with 173,880 days. It's just remarkable how that happens. It's almost like God has a plan. And, and we, can, we can back this up. If we take the 69 weeks times 7 times 360, that's how we arrive at our figure of 173,880 days. So then we have to go from March the 5th, 444 B.C., plus 173,880 days to arrive at March the 30th. Now, from 444 B.C., to A.D. 33, remember there's minus 1, there's no year 0, you just add 444 and 33 is 477 minus 1 is 476. Okay, everybody on the same page here. Don't want to confuse anybody with too much. See, when you're really teaching through the whole counsel of God, you even have to cover math on Sunday morning. Now, if you take 476 years, multiply that by 365.24219898. How many days there are in a year? You come up with 173,855 days, uh, plus the t days from March the 5th to March the 30th, 25 days. You end up with a total of 173,880 days. Just remarkable how God is so precise, and He is not a God of chance. So when we add all this together. Uh, the 70 times 7 is 490 years. The 69 times 7 is uh, 173,880 days. We're left with the big question of what happens to the last seven years. Did they just sort of peter out in the early church age? Or are all of a sudden, after, 
after analyzing the first 69 weeks, are we now going to say, well, those last seven, seven years, the, the 70th week, that's just allegorical, that's just symbolic, that really refers to the entire church age or something like that. How can you shift your interpretation from a literal hermit interpretation the first half to an allegorical or spiritual or symbolic just for that last week to make it fit some system? Well, you can't do that. So we have a seven-year period that is still hanging. Now, in Daniel 9.26, we read, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be wars, desolations are determined. As you can tell from the picture in the background, there's no temple on the Temple Mount. There is the Dome of the Rock, and uh, so the temple has not yet been rebuilt. So we are still waiting. So this... What this tells us is that the last week, the 70th week, is unfulfilled. This is a period that will begin with the coming prince when, according to uh, verse 27, he will sign a covenant, a contract, a peace treaty with Israel, with the many, for one week. This covers the seven-year period the beginning you have the coming prince who is the antichrist and at the end you have the return of jesus christ now the term antichrist is only used one time in the scriptures to refer to the person who opposes jesus and believers during the tribulation period in the book of revelation he's called the first beast he has various other terms that we will get into as we go through our study of revelation but only once is he called the Antichrist, and the, the prefix anti in Greek doesn't have to do with being against. It has to do with substitution. The Antichrist is a substitute Messiah. He is a political leader who will offer himself as a Messiah. He will, off, he will claim to be able to accomplish that which Jesus said he would accomplish in terms of bringing worldwide peace and prosperity. Now, up to that time, there are going to be hundreds and hundreds of political leaders who are going to present themselves in messianic veins. In fact, we even have a, an organization that meets in a building up on the uh, east side of New York that has the same messianic pretensions because they have emblazoned on their wall at the entry to the United Nations building the verse uh, from Isaiah that uh, they will beat their swords into plowshares and pruning hooks into no, their spears into pruning hooks and their uh, swords into plowshares and man will learn war no more. So the UN has messianic antichrist pretensions. Just always remember that when you watch the news and all the politicians fawn over the UN as a solution. What they're offering is a antichrist type of solution. I'm not saying the UN is the antichrist or that the secretary general of the UN is the antichrist, but they are all manifest the same mentality that the antichrist of the tribulation will manifest. And any politician who claims that they can bring in peace and prosperity and solve everybody's problems and make everybody happy is making these same kinds of messianic 
pretension. So we have to be very careful of uh, uh, who we're following in terms of political leadership. So we have the coming prince who makes the this who is the one who will finally seem like he brings peace to the Middle East. Now, see, that's everybody. It's amazing how many people want to solve the problem of the Middle East. But I don't think that problem is going to be resolved until the Antichrist signs this particular peace treaty. This begins the 70th week, and it ends with the return of Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. Now, Daniel, on all of this, has to do with Israel, not the church. Now, Daniel 9.27 presupposes three things about the Antichrist. The first is that he will be a Roman prince. He will come out of the old Roman Empire. Now, that's a lot of territory because, if you recall, the old Roman Empire not only covered much of what is now Western Europe up to parts of England, France, Spain, parts of Germany, Switzerland, uh, Austria, over to Greece, but also Muslim countries like Turkey, and Syria, and Lebanon, and Egypt, and Libya in North Africa. These were also part of the old Roman Empire. So the Antichrist will come out of the old Roman Empire. Second, it presupposes the existence of a Jewish nation. You can't have the prince of one empire or nation making a peace treaty with another nation if that nation doesn't exist. See, there have been many people who say, taking the position that you don't have to have a return, an apostate return of the Jews to the land uh, before uh, the tribulation, but you do. Uh, it's very clear from Scripture. There is an apostate return to the land and an apostate temple in the land so that the events of the tribulation can unfold. So we should expect within the, probably within the, church age, although it's not necessary, but we've seen it, a return of Jews to the land and the establishment of a political entity in the land that must be there for the tribulation to even begin. And then third, there will be a Jewish temple. We can expect a Jewish temple. It doesn't have to be built today. Prior to, it doesn't have to be built before the rapture, but it has to be there at least before the midpoint of the tribulation period. Now, the 70 weeks, as we've seen, concern the nation Israel. When the Jews rejected Jesus, God interrupted his program with Israel with the present church age uh, between the 69th and 70th week. After the rapture, God will resume his dealings with Israel for this one week of years, 70, one seven-year period. And since the first 69 weeks were fulfilled literally and in detail, we should expect the final 70th week to be fulfilled literally and in detail. So when we look at what the Bible teaches about the 70th week of Israel in Daniel 9.27, there are three things we will note. The commencement of the 70th week, what begins it? Second, the covenant of the 70th week, what does it do? And third, what ends that 70th week period? So in terms of the commencement of the 70th week, there is one event that begins the week, what, and we need to determine that. What starts the prophetic clock ticking again? It was stopped when the Messiah was cut off, 
and it starts again when there is a peace treaty. It's not the rapture that starts the tribulation. It's the signing of that peace treaty. The rapture can occur, theoretically, a hundred years before the tribulation begins. In fact, Clarence Larkin, who wrote a book many of you are familiar with called uh, Dispensational Truth. He's the guy who was an architect and made all those incredible charts, uh, if you've seen those. When he wrote that, it was during World War I or before, and he believed that if the rapture occurred in his generation, it would take at least 70 years to 100 years before the, uh, the Antichrist could sign a peace treaty with Israel because they weren't even in the land at that time. There was no nation. You know, they would have to return to the land. A nation would have to be established. All of that, would ha- he said, would have to happen before the tribulation could even begin. So he, he uh, speculated that you could have uh, 70 to 100 years between the rapture and the beginning of the, of the tribulation. So remember, when we talk about all these signs of the times, they're all signs related to the, what happens within the tribulation, and the rapture is not dependent on any prophecy. Well, what's interesting is when we begin to see certain things happening that relate to the tribulation, that relate to the second coming of Christ, what it just simply indicates is that things are closer. The stage is being set. We can't date set. I uh, watched a show last night briefly about all of these ancient prophecies. Maybe you saw it. They went back to ancient Babylonian prophecies and Mayan calendars and Nostradamus. And and I understand that uh, even some uh, Christian prophecy uh, (coughs) speculators have uh, gone along with this, that the end times or the rapture will occur on December the 12th, 2000. And was it 2010? Is that right? 2012. Yeah, December the 12th, 2012. And all these calendars agree. Well, I can tell you almost without a doubt, the one day it will not occur. <laughs> it's like that guy back in the 70s who, uh, Edgar Huizenut, who wrote the book 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. And then when it didn't happen, he revised the book, and it was, the next version was called 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1989. <laughs> then he gave up. So what begins the tribulation period is not the rapture, but the signing of this covenant, the signing of this peace treaty. That's what starts the 70th week. Now, the parties of the covenant are going to be the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, and the many, that is, the leadership of Israel. So this peace treaty is going to secure peace for Israel. Security and peace for Israel, I think that's part of what we see in Revelation 6, 1 through 2 in the first seal judgment. There is a rebuilding of the temple and access to the temple. Now, I'm not, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I often have a problem with this, the whole scenario of radical fascist Islam today. People say, well, what is, how's that play into prophecy? Well, I just don't see a, a Muslim antichrist allowing the Jews to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. Although one person has said the only thing they, that they might, that might give the Muslims uh, uh, reason to do that is if the Jews just gave up almost all the other land and gave up 
uh, autonomy. But I don't see that in this scenario either. So um, I just don't see Islam having a major role, but I could be wrong. I've been wrong on things like this before, and I'll be wrong on them again because I'm not a prophet. But this is what the Bible indicates. They'll have security and peace in Israel, rebuilding of the temple, and access to the uh, Temple Mount for offering sacrifices. And if you go to the Temple Mount today, Jews aren't allowed up there. And even if you're a group of Gentiles, and, and we go, well, the Jews control and so there's some soldiers up there. But in terms of large groups going up there for religious purposes, that doesn't happen. But even if Gentiles go up there and we pray, oh, the, the Muslims just get all upset. And it's almost like starting a riot. And I've just made it a personal objective that every time I take a group up on the Temple Mount that we're going to bow our heads and pray. So just to let you know, in case anything happens in June when we're there again, that you can, uh, isn't that right? We did that. And so we just want to make sure people understand mostly now. Wait a minute, I missed a... There we go, back to our slide. So this slide basically gives us the, the, the framework that you see that in the first half of the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist is the head of the West. He is a pseudo-Christ. That's why he comes on a white horse. The only other person riding a white horse in the, the book of Revelation is Jesus at the end. White all through Revelation speaks of righteousness. It's a pseudo-righteousness in his case as he's establishing his kingdom. During the first half, Israel will be in a somewhat protected state. There's an apostate church, an apostate Jewish Levitical system. And then in the second half of the tribulation, Israel will be persecuted. There will be a worship of Satan and the Antichrist as he establishes him himself in the uh, in the temple. So the Antichrist comes on the scene as the, the one riding the white horse. The covenant is broken in the midpoint of the tribulation as the one who is the protector becomes the persecutor, and that leads to the last half of the tribulation period, which is a period of three and a half years, Time, times, and a half a time, 1,260 days or 48 months. Now, we have to put all of this together just in terms of understanding the structure of the tribulation. The abomination of desolation appears halfway through the tribulation. It was foreshadowed when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig on the altar in the 3rd century B.C., and, but that was simply a foreshadowing of what will happen in the uh, middle point of the tribulation. The only clue that's given to it is that it has something to do with an idol or an image standing in the holy place, according to Daniel 12.11, compared with Matthew 24.15. Uh, so here is a nice artist's depiction of what this uh, might look like, but there will be this kind of uh, idolatry, blasphemy in the temple. So there will be two stages of the abomination of desolation. The first is the presence of the Antichrist himself in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in Second Thessalonians 2.4, and then he will replace his own presence with a, an idol or an image that remains there throughout the rest of the tribulation uh, period. The 70-week completes with a complete destruction and judgment on the Antichrist and his kingdom, according to 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.8 
and Revelation 19, 19 through 21. And so there are a number of parallels that we can see between Daniel 9.27 and Revelation. In Daniel 9.27, the um, uh, 70th week begins with a peace treaty. In Revelation, there's the rider on the white horse who goes forth to conquer, but he is, it's not a military conquest, but there is a conquest. Uh, there will be sacrifices in the temple in Daniel 9. There will be a temple in Revelation, Revelation 11, 1 and 2. Uh, the time relates to the same period, half, three and a half years or 42 months, 1,260 days. We have the same time frame in both Daniel and Revelation. The Antichrist will persecute the Jews. He is the one who makes desolate in Daniel 9, 27, and he persecutes and, and the Antichrist uh, is the one who persecutes the woman who represents Israel in uh, Daniel chapter 12 and also Daniel chapter 13. There is an, uh, the Antichrist image is the abomination of desolation referred to in Daniel 9, and the image of the Antichrist is mentioned in uh, Revelation 13:11 to 15. And then the end of the tribulation, there's the destruction of the desolator in Daniel 9:27, and the Antichrist is defeated in Revelation 19:20, and this will occur uh, as part of the military campaign of Armageddon. And the picture on the screen is a picture taken from the ridge of Mount Carmel, and it overlooks part of the valley of Esdralon, just to the right of where I'm standing, taking the picture is the, the hill of Megiddo, the ancient Canaanite uh, city fortress, the hill of Megiddo called Har Megiddo, which is where the term Armageddon uh, derives. And this is a massive uh, valley. When Napoleon saw it, he said truly all the armies of the world uh, could gather here. So Daniel's 70 weeks, just to tie this together, has two three-and-a-half-year periods, and what distinguishes them from one another is the abomination of desolation that takes place at the midpoint. Each half is equal, three-and-a-half years, and this then is referred to by Jesus in his uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, he says to the Jews, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So he is giving instructions to believers. Now what's interesting about this is in Matthew 24, 2 through 14, the focus is on the beginning of the birth pangs. And the beginning of the birth pangs deals with what's happening in the first half of the tribulation leading up to the abomination of desolation, what happens in the, uh, in the first half, and then following Matthew 24, 16, Matthew 24, 17 and following is what's described as the great tribulation, the intensified period that comes during the last half of the tribulation period. And next time we'll come back and work our way through Matthew 24, because once we understand what Jesus talks about in terms of what's on the first half and what goes on in the second half in Matthew chapter 20, 24, then we can lay this timeline over the book of Revelation and see where the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments 
fall out. So we'll come back to look at that next time. Now, as we wrap this up, there's a couple of things you should um, remember in light of this study. The first is what I've said again and again, the precision of God and how he rules, oversees history and prophecy, and that he is able to bring about exactly what he has decreed. And the second application flows from that, that in the same way God is concerned about the details of your life and is involved in the details of each of our lives, and he is not going to mess up on those details any more than he's going to mess up on the details of history. And the third thing is that we can take great comfort in the fact that no matter how unstable things may appear in history around us, no matter how uncertain things may appear politically, no matter how uncertain things may appear economically, no matter how uncertain things may appear militarily, God is still in control and God is working all things in history to work out to their ultimate conclusion. And so we as believers need to relax about these things and put our focus and attention on our primary mission, which has to do with evangelism on the one hand and our own personal growth to spiritual maturity on the other hand, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these prophecies and how uh, wonderfully detailed they are and how specific they are and how they work themselves out with such specificity in history. And we know that if they did that in the past, that they will also do that in the future. And the tremendous comfort that gives us when we look at a world that is so uncertain and unstable. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their uh, eternal life, unsure of their destiny, unsure of... of uh, what will happen when they die, that they will take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All of us are born spiritually dead. We're born without hope, without meaning, without purpose. But you loved us in such a way that you sent your Son to die on the cross for us, that by simply trusting in him, we have eternal life. Jesus Christ solved the problem, the greatest problem we'll ever face, which is our separation from you. And he solved that by dying on the cross and paying the penalty for our sins, that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we have eternal life. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that has never trusted in Christ as their Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. We pray that you would challenge each of us with the veracity of your word and the reliability of your word and your faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.